0: If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, Ideas Defining a Free Society. Hello, it's Friday, October the 18th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whelan, the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Research Fellow. My guest today in Hoover's recording studio here on the campus of Stanford University is Steve Scully. Steve Scully is the political editor of C-SPAN, which is short for Cable Satellite Public Affairs Network. He's nodding, so I got that right. That was created by the American cable television industry to air live gavel-to-gavel coverage of Congress, public affairs programming, and my favorite, the Road to the White House. Steve Scully is a past recipient of the Fitzwater Center for Communications Award for Exemplary Journalism and Public Service. He's also been recognized by Washingtonian Magazine as one of Washington, D.C.'s 50 top journalists. The HBO personality, John Oliver, is repeated to him as the, quote, most patient man on television. <laughs> he had to
1: remind me, huh?
0: Steve Scully is also a Hall of Famer inducted in May into the Pennsylvania Association of Broadcaster
1: Television Hall of Fame. Steve, welcome to the podcast. Bill, it is a pleasure. What a beautiful campus and. What's not to love about Palo Alto, California? So you're a native of Erie, PA, which means you've probably seen the movie That Thing You Do. I have, absolutely, and we get a lot of snow in the winter, too, so. Yes, and you're also the 14th of 16 children, correct? Five sets of twins. My dad used to say he was either a a passionate Protestant or a damn good Catholic. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. So what's it like to be the 14th of 16 kids? (laughs) You know, I didn't know any different because Uh I grew up with a lot of cousins. I mean, I, you know, my aunts and uncles had seven kids, eight kids, 10 kids. We had the largest, but uh, we didn't know any different. And we grew up in a community in Erie that was, you know, neighborhoods with a lot of families and a lot of kids. And um, it just, it seemed to be normal for us. And it's great. The problem is now we have a lot of siblings and a lot of nieces and nephews and a lot of cousins. So it's uh, huge family gatherings whenever we have a wedding or, you know, Thanksgiving or Christmas trying to all get together. It's a challenge.
0: That does sound complicated. It sounds like you need to do it over several days. Uh, Happy
1: 40th anniversary. 40th anniversary of C-SPAN this year. Founded in 1979. We get about uh, six and a half cents per month per cable subscriber. And with that, I think we do uh, a tremendous amount of programming. C-SPAN has been described as the
0: Switzerland of cable television,
1: meaning that you are neutral.
0: (laughs) We are. How do you maintain your neutrality? How do you avoid being invaded by the likes of Fox, MSNBC, CNN, and the other cable nets who are engaged in... Pretty open partisan warfare
1: well i think on a couple of fronts first of all you have to look at the business model of what c-span is all about mm-hmm. we are funded by the cable industry mm-hmm. we don't have to chase ratings we can put on uh programming that we think is relevant informative and interesting we have three networks we have the the, the websites and a, and a radio stations. so we have a lot of platforms but because we don't have to chase the dollar and ratings uh, we can continue to provide what i think is, is serious journalism And in my area, when it comes to the campaigns, uh, one of the most important things that we do is to show the president, as we did last night in Dallas, his Mm -hmm. speech in its entirety. We also show Michael Bennett and Tulsi Gabbard and uh, Joe Biden. And tonight we're live with Elizabeth Warren. And tomorrow we're going to be live with Bernie Sanders and uh, AOC, who will be endorsing him in the Queens. And so we have the ability to show the audience what's happening across the field in politics, Mm. and not just showcase the front runners or the president. Because admittedly, when the president in 2016 was on CNN and Fox and MSNBC with his speeches, the ratings would go up. We would cover those same speeches, but we would also cover the other candidates. We were among the first to cover Bernie Sanders in early 2015 and saw the huge crowds that he was getting, and we realized that there was something going on with this campaign. And so I think because of the business model, because of what we do, uh, and our reputation And it's it's actually easy for us to do this because we don't have to worry about, you know, what CNN or Fox or MSNBC is doing. And we don't have the personalities. Mm -hmm. I mean, the personalities for us are the events that we cover.
0: Right. How many eyeballs do you get for a typical Road to the White House event? For example, will the Bernie AOC event spike or do you just get kind of steady viewership?
1: You know, the, the interesting thing is the viewership that we get on other platforms, whether it's our Facebook page or YouTube page, and we can track literally into the millions of people who are watching those events right. on those uh, devices. We don't take ratings, mm-hmm. so we don't know how many people are watching on any given day. I think we've done a study that uh, we're averaging across the platforms you know, between three to five million viewers a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not a particular program, but that's a- across the C-SPAN networks, one, two, and three. Um, and, and then when there's a spike with a major event, and, and I'll, I'll give you one example with the Kavanaugh hearings. Mm-hmm. We saw a huge uptick in social media from people watching the Kavanaugh hearings. And one of the things that we did is we opened the phone lines in between the breaks. And I was happened to be on the air that day, and it really became a seminal moment because the, the emotion that rose up from other women that had experienced uh, sexual assault. And you know, right. I'm not saying that... Judge Justice Kavanaugh was guilty of anything. I'm just saying that that moment created a seminal moment for C-SPAN viewers in the New York Times and others wrote about it. So, you know, we're a reflection of America. We cover what's happening across America. And I think that uh, the ability to just, you know, to, to to react to the events and hear from the American people in a way that you're not going to get on any other network because we don't have an agenda, pure in and simple.
0: In terms of ideology and age, is there any specific demographic group for C-SPAN, or do you do you just cover it, the it it, it
1: it it goes across the board. We've done studies uh, with Peter Hart and others, and you would think, based on the callers, that it's a lot of uh, older white men that are calling, uh, but it's not. I mean, it's the people who are watching across the the right. the, the uh, socioeconomic uh, Levels, but again, keeping in mind that it's not just the cable audience. It's what people are uh, listening to on C SPAN radio or watching on their devices. And Mm -hmm. that has been a significant boon to what we're all about. And the other thing I should tell you, and and you know this because you watch our programming, is we're often the only network that will be covering these events, these speeches, these hearings. Uh, And so you know that if you want to see it, if you want to get it, it's going to be either on the air or on the web if you've missed it uh, from earlier in the day or earlier in the week. You've had over 20
0: Democrats to cover on the road to the White House. Do you have a... You have like a wax board on your wall or something like that, just tracking when was the last time they gave Tom Steyer attention or or uh, Steve Bullock or someone kind of the back of the pack? We do. And, mm-hmm.
1: and the thing is, uh, as I said, so we're we're sitting down with all of the candidates. We're in the middle of interviews with all of them. Uh, we're covering the multiple candidate events in right. Iowa, New Hampshire. We're going to be back in Iowa next week with, right. uh, I think, 18 of the candidates who will be at the uh, State Democratic Party Convention. But we we also – one of the things that we do so well, and if you go back in the C-SPAN archives, look in – and this is before I even started the network, back in 1989, 1987, Mm -hmm. we covered then-Senator Joe Biden at a House party. And that's one of those moments in which he became very animated, said that he was first in his class to go to college. He was running for president. He was running for president, his first run, uh, said that he is the smartest person in the room. And that became a, a moment that later resulted in him dropping out of the race. Right. I mention that because what we're trying to do now is to get these smaller venues, these house parties with Elizabeth Warren, you know, Amy Klobuchar uh, going to South Carolina, uh, uh, Senator Bennett doing events in Iowa that are at coffee shops, Senator Booker who's going to be in Boston on Sunday, on Monday, right. um, you know, talking to people at a bar because you're going to get a lot more from the campaign at this stage. Right. It becomes um, almost um, homogenized once they become the nominee with the standard speeches and the rallies and the events. But right now, this stage, even with 20 candidates and its challenge, Mm -hmm. uh, we find that uh, covering the the smaller venues really gives you a sense of, of who the person is. How has the
0: Biden campaign treated you now versus then? And I'm not singling them out for criticism, but they have reportedly been very standoffish with the media, very selective in who he talks to, being available to. And you're telling me that back in 1987, He welcomed you guys in and, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) watch me if you want to. Are they the same way in 2019?
1: Well, admittedly, I wish that they would give us more access. Uh, Mm -hmm. They have not done a lot of interviews. um, And I think that that is a mistake. Um, And I think it was a mistake that Hillary Clinton made in 2016. And it's a mistake that Mitt Romney made in, in 2012. So it's really bipartisan. Look, when you're running for president... You have to put yourself out there. You have to tell your life story. Mm -hmm. And you have to show the American people who you are, because it's not like they're selecting a congressman or a governor or a senator. I mean, the the, the vote for president is a very personal vote, and ideology is important. And so, yes, I mean, the Biden campaign uh, has been reticent to put him out there, uh, Mm -hmm. because they want to kind of manage the campaign and manage the message. It's very hard to do that in today's 24-7 social media, cable news environment. What drew you to politics? For me, Steve, I was
0: a journalist before I got involved in politics and became a Hoover Fellow. Uh, my attraction to politics, I was both living in Washington, and so it's the sport of Washington other than the Washington Redskins, which I guess we don't talk about now, the Redskins. No, let's talk about the about, the, How about the Nationals? I know, it. so I grew up at an age when the senators were taken away, so to see baseball thrive in Washington is a very strange thing for me. But for me, Steve, the attraction with politics was it was just current in Washington. I suspect also because I've always loved sports and thought at one time I wanted to be a sports reporter. It's the same competitive aspect because politics is a game in many
1: respects. But what drew you into politics? And one of the problems today, though, is politics has become almost like ESPN game day in which, you know, an event like a debate becomes all-consuming with the networks. You know, for me personally, I grew up in a big family. Uh, I had an uncle who ran for... uh, Register of Wills and school board. I was 11 or 12 years old. And back, in, so, back in Erie, PA. Back in Erie. Uh-huh. And he lost both races. But I, I loved the ability to interact with people. And I right. used to go to these, you know, small rallies that he would have and fundraisers. And so I guess that was my first taste in it. And then in 1976, I I was in high school, and it was the Democratic Campaign against Gerald Ford and Ronald Reagan, a great one of the greatest political election years, I think, of all time, both on the Democratic and Republican side. And I happened to get involved in the Jimmy Carter campaign, not because I was a Democrat or Republican, but because his campaign headquarters was on the way home from high school. And it was in the primary. And make a long story short, there's a there's a picture at the Carter Library, and I'm I'm gonna embarrass myself, but I'm gonna go ahead and do it. So there's there was a peanut shop in downtown Erie that had a Mr. Planner's peanut costume, and one of the advanced people in the primary said, hey, Scully, would you put that on? So I'm wearing this ugly Argyle sweater. I put the peanut uh, costume on. He lands in Erie, and they take the Mr. Planner's peanut and and put Carter Mondale on the uh, the, uh, Carter for president, because he was in the primary, and I'm shaking his hand. Fast forward about 10 years ago, I'm at the Carter Library interviewing the former president, and there's this huge picture of me in the peanut costume. He didn't know. I said, Mr. President, That's me. And he looked and he he kind of smiled. So that was my first entree into politics. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. But I tell you, I have a front row seat to history. Mm -hmm. And at C-SPAN, it's been tremendous just to be able to see, I mean, to be, be able to cover, you know, the election of bill clinton and the impeachment scandal and the 2000 recount and the rise of barack obama and now where we're at today with donald trump i mean it's an incredible ability to be able to see and be part of all of this
0: remember the carter campaign had one of the very clever buttons in 1976 steve it said the grin will win
1: that's right, or Grits and Fritz in '76. Very good, very
0: good. So you mentioned history. You have uh, talked to every interviewed every president going back to Gerald Ford. Correct. Correct. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, not saying which one you voted for, but who is which one was the best interview, just from a journalist standpoint? Which was the best one to sit down? Who did you get the most information out of?
1: Well, I. How much time do you have? I'll give you. I'll give you three examples. Uh, it's a
0: podcast. Uh, time is not an issue. I know
1: one. One of the um, one of the most memorable interviews was with Gerald Ford, and I had had the chance to sit down with him on a number of occasions. Some of these interviews, of course, were after they left the White House. What? What,
0: year, what year uh, This was in,
1: in two thousand in Philadelphia. So
0: he passed away in two thousand and four. I want to say. Uh, I believe so. Two thousand five, perhaps. Right, two thousand five. Okay. So
1: he went to Philadelphia because remember back in the early nineteen forties he was part of the Progressive Movement, uh, where the. The, the, the Republicans, Republicans had the yeah. convention. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 1944, he was at, at the Republic. Actually, 1940 was the, oh, the uh, Wilkie convention. And he was part of the Wilkie campaign. I mean, as a, as a college student. Okay. This is before World War II. And in the middle of the interview, he had a mini stroke, which is just incredible. We're, we're talking about Iran, and then he started talking about onions. And his mind just kind of, and it was kind of disconcerting. And then he snapped out of it. But then later that evening, he was admitted to the hospital, so it was, uh, you know, it was just kind of a kind of a bizarre moment to sit down with him. The second interview was with Bill Clinton after the Monica Lewinsky scandal, after the impeachment, and we're sitting in the cabinet room of the White House. This in
0: 1999? This is
1: 1999, mm-hmm. and he is defending uh, what he did, basically saying, if I succumb to this impeachment every future president would be facing charges that were obscure as this and what I did was wrong he apologized but he said it was not an impeachable offense and then in December of 2008 um, we're in the Oval Office we did the second to-last interview with President George W Bush mm-hmm. and he was always early we're there ready to do the interview the room that the you've been to the White House the private dining room uh, door opens and out walks the then President Bush and Vice President uh, Cheney and the President turns to Dick Cheney and says, Dick, you know Steve Scully and he looked at me he kind of grunted (laughs) and he walked out of the Rose Garden and the President looked at me with that kind of chuckle and he said I guess he didn't like his lunch. Well that was the lunch where he said I'm not gonna pardon Scooter Libby. I Uh didn't know that at the time I found out afterwards. So then we sit down for the interview and again one of the beauties of what we're able to do as you know when you have time for an interview that Mm -hmm. is a gift especially with the President. And so we talked about the gamut of his presidency. And one of the things we try to do so well, and this is what Brian Lamb does so effectively, is, is take the words of the person you're interviewing and just you know, read it back to them and, and put it into context. Mm-hmm. So what I did is I went back to his speech in December of 2000, after Bush v. Gore, the night the Supreme Court gave the 5-4 ruling, he is now officially the next president of the United States. And he talked about trying to bring the country together and uniting the country. And I I read that to him, and I don't have it in front of me, but I said to him, Mr. President, what happened? Mm -hmm. And it was almost like the air came out of the Oval Office. He just kind of slumped in his chair. He breathed heavily and said, I guess I was a more hopeful person back then. And it was just one of those moments where I thought, wow, here you have the president who came to power at, the, you know, at a divided time with Bush v. Gore, mm-hmm. dealt with the twin uh, tragedies of 9-11 in September of 2001 and the bank collapse in September of 2008. And you could just get a real honest moment about how he felt about his eight years in the White House. Right. Uh, and then he went on to talk about some of the mistakes he thought he made. Again, I didn't confront him. I just put it out there, and it was just one of those moments that I'll, I don't think I'll ever forget. Right. So it was always seems to me, if you watched uh, Bill Clinton
0: leave office in 2001, remember it took him all day to get out of Washington. He just would not leave. He right. just went from event to event to event. it just symbolically could just had a very hard time walking away from that job. George W. Bush, I think, very much like Harry Tr- Truman, who famously goes from the ceremony to the train and back to Missouri. George W. Bush. Had no problems leaving Washington. He,
1: he didn't look back, and I had the chance to sit down with him uh, a couple of times when he opened his library. He's now painting. Uh, he's enjoying his grandkids. Right. I, I think that's a great analogy. I mean, I, yeah. I think Bill Clinton would be president today if he could still do it. He, he loved. He loved everything about the job, and I know even up until the day that he gave pardons on January twentieth, two thousand one, he was he was right. in the office working. And um, I think you know George W. Bush has turned the page and enjoying life, enjoying retirement. You mentioned
0: Brian Lamb in passing, who's a very important figure in Washington politics the past 40 years or so, but a lot of our listeners probably don't know who Brian Lamb is. So explain briefly Brian Lamb and his significance in the life of C-SPAN.
1: Brian Lamb is, he really is a national treasure. I mean, you think about what he has created. He came to Washington during the height of the Vietnam War. He is a Navy veteran from a small town in Lafayette, Indiana. Um, had a number of positions at the Pentagon and realized that there had to be a better way to let the American people know what was happening. And this is before CNN, before MSNBC. We had three networks. And as you know, you and I both grew up. You had ABC, NBC, and CBS, Walter Cronkite, Uncle Walter. He was like the the voice of God. But there was a bias in the media. And so his approach was, let's put it all out there. Let's let the American people see what really happens in Washington. And the only reason why the House is on C-SPAN is that they were the first to agree to cameras. The Senate... Acquiesced back in 1986, and then C-SPAN 3 came along as a way to showcase other events, hearings that are happening, and then on weekends, history on C-SPAN 3 and books on C-SPAN 2. Mm-hmm. But he is probably the most modest individual um, you'd ever want to meet. He's always properly dressed in a suit and ties, very uh, you know um, conservative in terms of his attire. He knows everyone at C-SPAN. He he is constantly asking about your family members and about, you know, your parents and your kids. Mm -hmm. He is truly beloved. Um, and the thing is he is the same person today that he was when he started the network 40 years ago, very humble. You know, he's never mentioned his name on the network, not once. Um, he could be a huge personality, but that's not who he is, and I think that that is reflected in how we approach our jobs at C-SPAN. It really is, you know, the mission of Brian Lamb and now with Rob Kennedy and Susan Swain, who are the co-presidents, but right. it, again, it's, it's about the events that we cover, not about who we are. It's what my dad used to tell me. He said, don't tell me what you think, tell me what you know. Right. And that's really what Brian is all about, just the facts.
0: And we were joking before the podcast that Brian Lamb is the author, the master of the C-SPAN look, as I call it, which is when you're on the air on C-SPAN, I've done C-SPAN in a past life, you are not supposed to be emotive. Somebody calls and they may ask the most complicated, nutty question, if you will, but you're supposed to look in the camera and keep a straight face. And it's a challenge the first time you do it because your it first is, reaction is to like, look yeah. off of the sky. <laughs> what we are talking about was uh, I would do it on the East Coast at you know, 7, 8 o'clock in the morning. and somebody calls in from California, it's still the dead of the night in California. So your first thought is, what is this person doing up at this hour? <laughs> Where are they going with
1: this question? We think that all the time. i got to tell you, it, it's even more of a challenge today, mm-hmm. but it's also even more important. I mean, we, we have to correct the facts from time to time, if, if right. people are saying things that are just blatantly wrong. But but if they're expressing their opinion, we're not going to well, jump in. Well, I've noticed you've adapted with the time. So you have gone in elections to
0: Republican, Democratic lines, liberal, conservative lines as mm-hmm. well. So you're trying to Trying to, I suppose, balance out the calls,
1: and we mix it up. You know, sometimes we'll do. We want to hear from Republicans only about the GOP primary or Democrats right. only, uh, because we want it We want the programs and the calls to be informational. We don't want rants. Yep. You know, we don't want, you know, belligerent attacks, and, and we get that. And again, if you have strong opinions, that's perfectly fine. It, right. it's a, If you cross the line and using profanities, and we're going to stop you right there. But uh, we want a civil discourse because that's really. We are America's town hall. Mm. So you have interviewed Donald Trump. You did it on July the 30th of this year. I did, yes. And you
0: did it in the Roosevelt Room of the White House. Mm-hmm. Let's walk through that a little bit since this is an Area 45 podcast in Trump. Um, first of all, the agreement to do it. What rules limitations were placed on
1: you? No rules. Uh, the agreement was that we would sit down and uh, have up to a half hour to have talk to him minutes. about the issues. Um, you know, we had been trying for a while to sit down with him. We did an interview with him in the 2016 primaries. And um, I think, you know, they understood. And, and Sarah Sanders, before she left, was the one that really made it happen. And I said, look, you know, he has done everyone else. We are covering this president more than anyone else. Right. We have should have an opportunity to sit down with him. And so finally they, they acquiesced.
0: Mm-hmm. So you then had to think, how do I fill
1: 30 minutes with Donald Trump? Well, he is a very difficult person to interview, uh, and here's why. Because his mind goes all over the place. It's just who he is. It's just a fact. I mean, if right. you watch him when he's doing taking reporters' questions, you know, he may start at X and then go to Y and then Z and then begin at A all over again. Correct. Unlike George W. Bush or Barack Obama or Bill Clinton, when you sit down and interview with him, if you ask a, a policy question, for the most part— they're going to stay in that policy area. But with Donald Trump, right. he literally goes all over the place and then tries to bring it back. The uh, knock, and the and knock his answers can, can, can ramble on. The knock with Trump would be he would filibuster. He would just, oh, excuse me, with Obama's he'd
0: filibuster. He'd watch a White House press conference. He'd answer a question for 10 minutes. It's called running out the clock. Mm-hmm. How long does Donald Trump answer questions?
1: Well, <clears throat> he can answer questions. They're often long answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whether it's a question that I'm asking right. or a, a question at a news conference. Um, because that's that's how his mind works. Mm-hmm. And um, he he wants to make his points. He often repeats those points two, three, or four times in the same answer. Right. Again, that's just his style. Yeah. And um, more often than not, we'll always bring it back to the economy, strongest economy in the country, I won the election, I bring up crooked Hillary. I mean, he mm-hmm. has kind of the standard playbook that he's going to try to, to bring in. Right. But it, you look at this president, I mean, and this is just a fact. I mean, he, his his big issue is the strong economy. He's going to constantly refer to that. And as um, the late Cokie Roberts had told me once, the Nielsen rating is his uh, stock market. That, he <laughs> looks at the stock market like he looked at Nielsen's when he was on The Apprentice. And uh-huh. I think that's probably a good analysis. So other issues he may not be as immersed in, but jobs, the economy, you know, uh, 2020 and winning the election in 2016, which I think still probably stunned him that yeah. he won. It is uh, so. When you sat down with Trump, you had a
0: decision to make, which was what do I, what question do I lead this interview with? Because the first question can set a tone. So if your first question is well, impeachment, well, it was July 30th, so impeachment's not quite there, right? It wasn't there, yeah.
1: Something that you just know is going to set him off. So what was your first question? You know, the, the question that we looked at, I have to go back and look at the transcript, but what I tr- was trying to do in the interview is to try to get beyond what he had been talked about. Uh, he he did a press avail earlier in the day. Iran was in the news as well, and so my approach is to not ask the same questions that have been asked already. Right. Because if that happens, you're going to get the same old talking points. Mm -hmm. I did try to get him to reflect a little bit more. I mean, I asked him about his father at one point. I asked him about the tone that he sets for this country and Mm -hmm. and whether he thinks he, you know, sets the proper tone Mm -hmm. because I then confronted him and said, you know, you can be a very divisive person, Mm -hmm. but he didn't take the bait. And what surprised me is some of the, not softball, but the more introspective questions about his father, for example, because I'm really interested in in, in his dad and and what he would think and and how he relates to the influence of his dad. Because if you look, if you go to the Oval Office, in the credenza behind his office, the pictures are of his mother and father, not Mm -hmm. of his wife, uh, Melania, or his sons or daughters. And so I, I just thought that was kind of interesting. But he didn't take the bait. Right. He was, you know, he just kind of gave some off-the-cuff answer and, um, and, and kind of moved on. So anytime you sit, sit down with the president, you want to make news. Um, we made news on trades and tariffs. I think the biggest news we talked about was the, the debt and the deficit. I was really concerned about that because you have a, a $23, $24 trillion debt, and mm-hmm. he has been known to be, he called himself the king of debt. And um, he admitted that they're going to have to rein in spending and possibly deal with taxes after the election in 2020. So that was some of the news that came out of it. A few things I'm curious about with him, first of
0: all, he doesn't have a dog.
1: No, he doesn't. First president
0: since, I guess, Carter not to have a dog in the White House. Yeah, you're right about that. Is he allergic to dogs or he just doesn't like dogs or...
1: You know, I never asked him that. Uh, It's a good point. Uh, As Harry Truman said, if you want a friend in Washington, you want to get a dog. This is
0: what's tough about journalism at this age, Steve. If you had asked, why don't you have a dog? Someone would have snarkily written, you have 30 minutes of the President of the United States. Why are you asking about dogs? But (laughs)
1: but I find this kind
0: of a little window. I mean, you don't have a dog. You don't have a pet. You know, and it's an old line. If you want a friend in Washington, get a dog.
1: You know what? Next time we sit down with him, I'll ask that question. Bill Clinton gets into political trouble. Up comes Buddy the Lab. That's right. And that famous picture of uh, the Lab Buddy and uh, Chelsea and Hillary the day after he. Testified that he had the affair with Monica Lewinsky.
0: Yeah, that was sad. Um, The other question I would have is, uh, how is life different if you get the Buffalo Bills? Remember, he wanted to own the Buffalo Bills football Mm -hmm. franchise. The NFL says no, but if he's an NFL owner, is he going to be president of the United States?
1: Yeah. that's Alternate history. Two good questions. I'll take those. (laughs) Thank you, Bill. Next time you
0: talk to him, give me a call. Uh, so you've been doing this. You've been following presidential campaigns since 92 for C-SPAN. And I mm-hmm. think this is a very interesting arc to talk about because in 1992, Bill Clinton is elected. I'm working on the Bush-Quail campaign in 1992, by the way. If you go to a Bush-Quail reunion, and people will put up an L on their forehead. You're the only Bush father-of-son November campaign to lose, presidentially, nationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a fun effort. And we just did not get Bill Clinton on a lot of levels. We thought the American voters would think he was kind of a huckster and kick him to the curb. Uh, We thought the American public had much more faith and trust in George uh, H.W. Bush, but we also failed to understand that Bill Clinton was doing a better job of modern media than we were. If you remember, Steve, when Clinton is elected, he goes to, I think, the radio TV gallery dinner his first year, Mm -hmm. and he tells a really bad joke. I don't mean an off-color joke, but a bad joke, and it's the joke the audience doesn't want to hear. And what he says to them, Steve, is, you know what I found out in the last election? I don't need you people. I can go to Larry King anytime I want to, and he thought it was funny, and they didn't because they saw their livelihood going up. And he
1: did Arsenio Hall in the in the primary after he secured the nomination. But in 1992, Steve, we have now
0: satellite tours for candidates, and candidates are now sitting down for half an hour and hitting three markets around the country. It's an incredibly efficient way. And Arsenio and Larry King, cable TV is now really kind of popping up. And now you fast forward to 2016, and Donald Trump, you know, going live on CNN and live on Fox News, that being a big part of the tailwind that gets him elected. Talk about this evolution as you see it.
1: Well, it's been incredible. Uh, and you're right. I think the biggest mistake, uh, and I'll even go back to, to 1980, because I think uh, the Carter campaign kind of relished the chance to run against uh, Ronald Reagan, a washed up Hollywood actor that right. uh, didn't have the, the smarts to be president of the United States. And, and we know what happened. I think early in 1992, keep in mind, there are a lot of Democrats in that year who did not run, most notably Governor Mario Cuomo and right. Congressman Dick Gephardt because mm-hmm. they, too, thought that this was going to be another Republican year. We're going to pass and wait till, till 1996. Right. So Bill Clinton had, had the, you know, the smarts to run and, and to be in the game. And I think what we saw in Bill Clinton and what we see in Donald Trump is somebody who was and is a fighter. And mm-hmm. when he was hit, he didn't pull what uh, Gary Hart did and drop out of the race. He hit back and hit back pretty hard. So I think that's a lesson from the 92 campaign. But you're right, the media has changed significantly uh, over the time. I mean, when I first started at C-SPAN, in the quaint old days, we get a call from Jack Heath of WMUR and say, hey, we're going to have the seven candidates in a debate uh, next week. Would you, would you carry it on C-SPAN so we can have a national audience? And mm-hmm. Now today, of course, MSNBC right. and Fox and CNN have those debates, and they become, as I said earlier, these ESPN game day moments where mm-hmm. they build coverage around the debate. Um, and I, I, I do think that what we have lost a, a lot of is what I would call the invisible primary, where you have the candidates who can go out, give their speeches, make their mistakes, like Jimmy Carter in 1975 when he was Jimmy Who. Now, the moment you run, you know, the the glare of the media is on you, the social media. Everyone has a smartphone. Everyone has a camera. Any, any glitch, any mistake, any uh, misstep is going to be magnified through social media. And so I think right. that the candidates today are much more cautious um, just because of the very nature of, of where we're at today. Right. And the question is, where is all of this going to lead in 2020 or 2024? What's going to be the next big thing like Twitter, like you know, right. Instagram, that will further drive what the news is all about? But let me just bring it back real quickly to what we do at C-SPAN. Because even though we have changed as well in terms of how we get our information out to the public through social media, through various platforms, the core mission has stayed the same. You know, we have better graphics, we have better technology, we can do a lot more live events. Mm-hmm. But the, the idea of, of showcasing these candidates and letting voters understand who they are, sitting down and talking with them, covering their speeches, following them in New Hampshire, getting them at the Iowa Steak Fry, um, I think it, it does a real service. And if I could, I'll give you one example. With Senator Bernie Sanders, and again, this is just his personality, but we were able to show this. We're covering him at the Iowa State Fair, and we now have Live View equipment, so he gives a speech at the soapbox area, and then he's making his way from the soapbox box area to the Butter Cow. Mm-hmm. Why the Butter Cow is so popular at the State Fair in Iowa, I don't know, but it's been a legendary since 1968 with Richard Nixon. Right. And as we watched um, Senator Bernie Sanders, he didn't do a lot of interactions with voters. He didn't want to do a lot of selfies. He just kind of made his way to the, the Butter Cow and probably did it in about 18 to 20 minutes. Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar took them up to an hour because they're shaking hands. And so you just got a different sense of the personality of the candidates that you would only get by what we're able to showcase live on, on the network. Interesting. So there's a debate in politics, Steve, as
0: to whether or not Donald Trump is a one off or the symptom of something much larger in America. In other words, can somebody else come along and campaign and run on the same issues in the same style as Trump? I think this is an interesting question media wise mm-hmm. as well. Do you think another candidate will be covered like Trump, given the gavel to gavel that he was the, the beginning to end on stump speeches in 2016 that he got? Or is this, to, uh, to, to borrow a line for the who, won't be fooled again? The media will pull mm-hmm. back. Uh, Because eventually somebody charismatic is going to come along, and like Trump, they're going to come out of a celebrity entertainment background, and it's going to be clickbait for people to watch and very tempting to put on TV for ratings and just to juice that. But the media are going to have to take a step back and think, is this right? Is this fair? You know, I don't want to dodge the question,
1: but I don't know the answer to that. I think it's a really good question. Well, you've got coverage
0: because you guys – this is
1: your blanket policy. Yeah. Yeah. No, but but I – but, you know, Donald Trump – I think has changed American politics. Mm -hmm. I think on so many different levels, and I think he's changed the presidency. Um, You know, I mean, his use of Twitter, he has become the White House communications director and the White House press secretary. There's no filter now between the press office and the president. We hear directly from him. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And the other thing that's changed, well, Two things. First of all, Donald Trump has been good for our industry. I mean, look at the New York Times has now almost 5 million paid subscribers. Our web traffic and our viewership clearly is up because of the interest in the Trump presidency. The other thing is that Donald Trump is very accessible. As president, he is a very accessible person. He meets with the press a lot. Right. You know, I would prefer they didn't do it with Marine One in the background because he's screaming above the helicopter, but he is taking reporters' questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on, on those levels, he's changed uh, the presidency, and he clearly changed American politics because he is the first president ever elected that had no government experience, no military experience. Um and I think the election of Barack Obama proved that you didn't need a lot of experience to be president because he had been basically U.S. senator for co- only a couple of years, but at least he'd been elected to a, to a federal position, so he had some level of understanding of Washington. In terms of politics, um, we're going to see another Donald Trump, who that person is and who he or she is down the road. Right. I can't forecast, but I think he has shown a way that you can get elected. Two points. First of all, his rallies, which became part of the political fabric of 2016 and his use of Mm -hmm. social media and the fact that we thought he was going to spend a lot more money than he did proving that you need money in a presidential campaign but once you get the nomination if you're able to use the media the way he did You don't need to spend as much money on advertising because it's going to get out there one way or the other.
0: How does his administration's approach to C-SPAN differ or continue past administrations? By that, Steve, I mean the availability of secretaries to come on and talk about what they're doing. Uh, They're courting you to come follow them on the road to events, Mm -hmm. things like that. Because, you know, what's interesting to me about the Trump presidency is it's so much driven by the principal. The principal makes news. They don't do White House briefings now because... He'd rather just make news through Twitter. Right. I'm curious, though, as to the second tier. Uh, uh, sitting here in California, for example, the Clinton administration was brilliant in its first term at sending secretaries, undersecretaries out here every week just about, just to make news, just to show... We're paying attention. We're doing things for California. We love you. We haven't forgotten about you. But in terms of C-SPAN and the Trump administration, are things the same as they have been, or is there anything different?
1: Oh, it could be much better. I mean, let me be perfectly honest. Um, we want more access. Uh, right. I think that you're right. The Clinton and the George W. Bush administrations, during my time, probably would they had the most accessibility in terms yeah. of uh, making chiefs of staff and cabinet secretaries available to the network. Part of the problem, and I saw this figure the other day in the Wall Street Journal. The president has had an 80% turnover in his senior staff. Right. And so, because of that, you just begin to establish relationships with people and they're out the door. Yes. I mean, Sean Spicer was and is a good friend of mine, and so, you know. Uh, he, you know, he, he was our entree into making sure that we would have access to cabinet secretaries. And it, it started out initially okay, s- doing profile interviews, sitting down, with, talking with m- many of them. The president has included C-SPAN in the um, State of the Union right. lunches with network anchors, which is a, 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 I think it's important to get an yeah. understanding of how the president interacts. Those have been interesting sessions, even though they're off the record. You really do see the president uh, one-on-one. And uh, so it, on that level, it's it's been much better. But you always want more.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm just curious about this because every administration has a story it wants to tell and it wants a positive story it wants to tell. In Trump's case, he wants to tell the story of a good economy and judges picked and so forth. You guys are the cleanest avenue for that in Washington.
1: Oh, I would totally agree. Um, again, the the president's focus really is the president himself. I mean, he right. is, as is, is, uh, other people have said here, At Stanford, his north star is Donald Trump, and so you know I'm not sure how much thought he gives to other cabinet secretaries outside maybe Mike Pompeo and Mm -hmm. Treasury Secretary Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin. But you know we continue to try, and um, if he's reelected, hopefully we'll have even more access. And and if he's not elected, we'll have a new administration on the Democratic side, and you keep fighting the battle. In June, the uh, South Carolina
0: Democratic Party denied C span coverage of its party convention. Live coverage. Yes. Live coverage uh a one-off or something to be worried about
1: no i think it was a one-off uh and i got criticized uh by the democratic party chair by being so vocal but i did it for a very simple reason i wanted to send a Senate shot across the bow that you know this is what we do all the time
0: well they handed In, coverage to msnbc right right
1: what, yeah. what what they said is you can cover the dinner the night before none of the candidates were speaking. There's also, uh, Jim Clyburn had a big fish fry, which we did cover. And you can cover the speech, but you have to embargo it and air it on a tape-delayed basis. So what happened was MSNBC basically used the State Democratic Party Convention as a backdrop for their anchors and reporters to do interviews. They showed very little of, of the, of the uh-huh. convention. Uh, I was on the horn with other party chairs and they all were kind of uh, appalled that this had happened. And we want to cover the South Carolina Democratic Party events. And I think because we were so forceful in fighting back, because again, this is not a debate. This is an open event Mm -hmm. that you guys are putting together, and if you want to deny us coverage, you can do that, but we're going to make it known that um, we were not happy with it. And I think that that sent a message to New Hampshire and Iowa and Nevada and other state party chairs that these early events with all of these candidates, you're missing out on an opportunity. And here's the thing. When we cover these events, we're getting the up-and-comers in politics the state senators, the state assembly members that might someday be members of Congress or maybe even running for president. One of the great things that we have at C-SPAN, the video archives, we covered uh, a young activist in Chicago back in 1991 by the name of Barack Obama before he became a state senator. Hmm. So if you go to the video library and you'll probably type in your name, Bill, you'll see your uh, events from the 1980s. So Howard Mortman, uh, who is at C-SPAN
0: and uh this is an interesting Washington relationship because Howard Mortman uh, does communications for C-SPAN. Yes. Uh, Howard Mortman is also maybe the funniest man in Washington.
1: Oh, don't tell him that. His ego just went through the roof.
0: No, maybe one of the funniest. One of the funniest. Well, <laughs> he's a great you, guy. he not tell you. He's a great guy. So Howard was uh, doing this very mischievously. He was going back into the C-SPAN archive, and he put one up of me, uh, which... I was kind of shocked to look at it because I had a lot more hair back then, for one thing. made me very sad, actually. But, but oh, Howard, You look great today. Well, thank you. But Howard was going back and, and doing that, just showing people way back in the day on C-SPAN. Right. Very funny thing to do. Um, this is now mid-October, Steve. And, um, the presidential campaign is going to move very fast now, even though the holidays are coming up Interfering with things. We're within four months now of Iowa and New Hampshire. What does C-SPAN do on Iowa and New Hampshire now? Do you just show local coverage?
1: No. Actually, what we do is, well, let's take Iowa, for example. <clears throat> We're the only place that will show caucuses as they happen. We've been doing that since 1988. We we will go to... Uh, but, how do,
0: but how do you do that exactly, Steve? Because ca- it's caucuses, plural, and there are,
1: there are thousands, thousands
0: going around, around the state. So
1: what we're going to do is we will likely pick three locations. Mm-hmm. Uh, we may even do a Republican caucus uh, if there is going to be one. But for, for, the, for the Democrats, we'll try to get one in a large venue in Des Moines. We try to look for mm-hmm. caucuses that have been uh, looking at the demographics, what happened in 2016, what happened in 2012 in terms of yeah. the, the the turnout and is it skewed one way or the other or was it very evenly divided. We want to we want to kind of show when it's evenly divided. Right. Uh, I'll never forget one caucus that we covered back in 2008 and it was in this woman's home and she pulled out a bottle of wine and they had some cheese and crackers and grapes and they're sitting around a table and they're talking about politics. And that is, again, one of those quintessential C-SPAN moments that we would only cover. So we'll we'll cover the caucuses. Then what we'll do is cover the speeches, not only just the front runners, but all of the speeches by the right. candidates, give the results, um, and then move right on to New Hampshire and basically 24-7 coverage leading up to the New Hampshire primary with the candidates and simulcast of WMUR to get a sense of how this is playing out on the local level. Right. Um, we have to figure out what... What is our niche or niche? What is it, niche or niche? I always say one or the other. (laughs) But, you know, we stick to our knitting, and uh, that includes showcasing what's happening in these early primary and caucus states and giving the audience a sense of of being there, basically.
0: Right. Then what will you do on March the 3rd when you have a lot of states going down on Super Tuesday?
1: Well, we'll continue to cover the campaigns. Uh, We have a... Really good partnership with the other networks, so we share a lot of our videos, so if there's event coverage, we may get events that we'll feed to CNN and NBC, and right. conversely, I mean, because we can't do it all ourselves, uh, but we just plow ahead. I mean, we cover the candidates and their speeches, and by then, I'm, I'm sure we'll have from 18 or 20 candidates, probably down to a dozen or even fewer, and so that, that process will will evolve as it normally does, especially with a record number of candidates, Mm -hmm. and then we'll probably be down, I think, by mid-March to maybe three or four front runners, and those are the people then that will continue to get the attention.
0: And you can also fill the time in February and early March with bowing out speeches. (laughs) Very good. Right. Uh, You (laughs) mentioned that the field will get down uh, narrowed very fastly, and now we're going to ask the question we ask every four years, and that's the idea of an open convention. Uh, this is kind of like Charlie Brown and the football. In many right. We talk about it every four years and it gets yanked away, sure enough. But in a scenario where, say, Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders and maybe Pete Buttigieg were all taking a share of the vote and nobody's getting the majority share of delegates come the time they go to Milwaukee, how does C-SPAN cover an open convention? And let's actually preface this by saying that um, my I became very interested in C-SPAN in the 1980s because you guys stepped in It did something very important for the democratic process. The network once upon a time showed mm-hmm. gavel to gavel every day of the convention and then come the 1980s two things happened first of all just they had pri- too much pressure on prime time to show show the conventions and they started looking around and noticing that they were losing you know in reruns to sitcoms in terms of ratings so they started getting into fights with the parties giving them one hour on certain nights and things like that enter c span which is willing to go gavel to gavel every day but in Milwaukee, Steve, if you do walk into that convention for the first time since, boy, the last, what, Kansas City in 1976, I guess, is the last time it was unsettled, how are you going to cover that?
1: Well, I tell you what, wouldn't it be fascinating? It's both a dream and a nightmare, it, I guess. No, it would not be a nightmare. It would be a dream. And I, I, I'm so intrigued about the 1976 Republican Convention, because you mentioned that was where Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter going to the convention, really not Ford certain. Ford and Reagan. Ford and Reagan, sorry. Uh it, Ronald Reagan and and Gerald Ford, and then in 1980 with uh, Ted Kennedy and and, and Jimmy Carter going into that convention. Although in 1980 in New York, everyone knew Carter was going to be renominated, but again, there was some drama. We haven't had that since then. So two things have happened. First of all, conventions have become media shows for the parties and the candidates. Right. Uh, and primetime coverage is very scripted and, 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 and sometimes it can be you know, boring for people who watch, but right. we do the whole convention because that's what we do best. If it is an unscripted convention, we will certainly redouble our efforts and resources, uh, but boy, it would be worth any investment that we can put in terms of personnel and in terms of coverage. We'll have many cameras inside the convention hall. We'll figure out how we can best tell the story about what's happening. And it would actually be a great lesson in democracy to see something like this happen because we haven't seen it in in over 40 years.
0: Now we get into a real interesting question. Open conventions are gonna have a lot of intrigue in terms of how delegations are voting, mm-hmm. which means a lot of backroom deals, not smoke filled anymore, nobody smokes anymore, but backroom deals nonetheless. Right. So a good question of access for
1: you. Access in terms of?
0: Access in terms of watching deals go down and finding out when things are happening and seeing kind of live just how everything transpires.
1: Well, if it happens on the floor, right. we're going to see it. Uh, I think we saw that in at the 1968 convention in Chicago yes. where there's so much uh, brokering and deal making. And looking back, one of the great things on C-SPAN 3 is we showcase these conventions from the 1960s. Um, if it's Backroom deals, it's going to require some pretty good reporting right. and getting the right guests that can kind of explain what's happening. Um, the one thing is, you know, as I said to, to you earlier, Bill, everyone has a camera, everyone is involved social media, so there are going to be a lot of eyeballs in what's happening either in Milwaukee or in cl- behind closed doors, those so-called smoke-filled rooms that you mm-hmm. referred to. And one way or the other, the story or stories are going to get out there. Right.
0: Okay. So C-SPAN at the age of 40. What is C-SPAN going to be like at the age of 50?
1: Well, it's interesting. <clears throat> when we turned 40, we decided as a company that we're not going to look back. We're going to look forward. Life begins at 40. Well, yes. and, 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 and uh, So h- what are we doing? How are we positioning ourselves, to go back to your earlier point, mm-hmm. to make sure we remain competitive? Mm -hmm. And what I tell people is that you have a lot of choices in news and information. We're Mm -hmm. just one of those choices. So one of the things we have to continue to work on is to make sure that we're providing that material in a way that is accessible to people, especially in today's mobile generation. The second thing is how can we make it more digestible? Mm -hmm. So if you don't wanna watch a a 90 minute Trump speech, we can send out, here are the highlights of what's been happening. And then Mm -hmm. if you wanna watch the whole thing, it's on our website at Mm cspan.org. The other component in all of that is much more live coverage. I mean, in, in the good old days when I first started, we'd go up to New Hampshire, cover some speeches, bring them back, edit them, put them on the air on a Sunday night, promote the hell out of them. And now, of course, we want to make sure it's live all the time. And so right. th- there's there's no like set time for Road to the White House or Campaign 2020 coverage. It's based on when the events are happening. Mm-hmm. But being live as much as possible is, I think, a very powerful tool for people who are surfing the cable channels. And yeah. look, we're in the same neighborhood as CNN or Fox or MSNBC. So if you're flipping the dial and you're you want to watch the speech and you have, you know, the analysis on the other cable networks, you're going to turn to C-SPAN because you know we have it unfiltered. And so making sure that we maintain what our mission is all about and carry on the legacy of Brian Lamb, remain the Switzerland of the media, but also make sure that we're doing it in a way that is making it uh, accessible to as wide of an audience as possible. I think in a nutshell, that's our mission and objective moving ahead.
0: Okay, and final final
1: question, Steve. You've been at your Hoover
0: for a week now. Uh, what have you discovered besides the fact the weather here is pretty nice? The
1: weather is not pretty nice. The weather is fabulous. Yeah, three, I have you've got three three earthquakes. Uh, still great that a, weather. That was a treat. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't feel. I felt one of them. Yeah. You know, it has been it, it it's been good on a couple of fronts because I feel sometimes I'm on a treadmill meeting deadlines with radio and politics and our programming that we're doing. So to take a step back and to just reflect on where we're at, to talk to people like you and to so many other senior fellows, to interact with the students, has been refreshing and re-energizing in terms of how I view where we're at. I'm going back to Washington now even more excited um, and realizing what a great institution this is and what Hoover provides and, and, and the people who are here sitting down with, you know, Condoleezza Rice for an hour and a half as she talks about everything from U.S. foreign policy to the NCAA in in football. I mean, it was just an incredible moment, and and she's just one of countless people that we've been with during the week. Um, So I I, I leave uh, loving Stanford, loving the people at at Hoover. Uh, the, the the people that I've talked to and hopefully can carry out some of uh, what you're doing here and sharing it to the C-SPAN audience. Good. Well, I know we've enjoyed having you here, and thanks for doing the podcast. My great pleasure. Thank you. Right. Safe travels back to D.C.
0: Steve Scully. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to America's 45th president. And this podcast is in exchange with C-SPAN, the cable satellite public affairs network. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. Tell your friends about us. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows straight to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hooverinst, at Hoover I-N- st steve scully is on twitter his twitter handle is perhaps not surprisingly at steve scully scully spelled s-c-u-l-l-y and c-span's on twitter its twitter handle is at c-span and you can also find c-span at
1: cspan.org. anything else i need to plug i think you have it all and Very c-span good. radio and uh, c-span one two and three bill it's been a great joy thank you thank you for the hoover
0: institution this is Bill Whelan. we'll be back soon with another installment of area 45 Till then take care thanks for listening For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dauer for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.